Father, you have been so good to us. We are so blessed. Father, we'd like to maintain that blessing as far as it remains with us. We know that the nation of Israel lost blessings because of their behavior. And we know that you are a graceful God and you you bless us not according to what we do. You bless us just according to your grace. And we understand that. But we desire to bless you through our obedience, through our walks. We pray that you would assist us in those. And we would ask, Lord, that as we uh, continue on this roller coaster of a life, especially with what has transpired this last week, we know that there are going to be people in danger. And we'd ask that you would place your angels around those who are doing a good work in protecting America's population, whether at home or abroad. And Father, there are terrorists who would wish to do us harm. And we had asked, Lord, that you would again protect. You would bring your angels. You would give wisdom to those who are in charge of our safety. But most of all, Lord, minister to us. Reach down on the inside. Transform us into who you want us to be. And even though we thought walls would fall down by now, we'll trust you and rely on your faithfulness. So we give you thanks for this, Lord, and for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you knew you only had two days to live, what would you tell those closest to you? You might express, and I think most of us would, our love to all who are close to us. Uh, We'd give final instructions, information, admonishments, and blessings. We'd probably certainly, if we were capable, have a final meal. And for us, there might be even an expression of laments and expressions of regret, things that we wish we would have done, should have done, could have done. Jesus did this. Where we are right now in the Gospel of Matthew 26 from chapter 24, 25, and 26, Jesus had two days to live. And so he gave his disciples information. He instructed them. He admonished them. As well as the future generations of what the fate of Israel and Jerusalem would be and the world for that matter. He had his last meal. He served those who were closest to him on the night that he was betrayed. Remember, he had the the Passover meal, and he got down and he washed the feet of his disciples at that point. And that was the ultimate act of selflessness. And he is our example. He was going to the cross. He thought not of himself, but only those around him wanted to make sure they had all the information and the examples that were necessary. And, of course, he had been with his inner circle of disciples for three years at this point. So he gave the Olivet Discourse. That just means it was given on the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is directly east of the old city of Jerusalem, the Temple Mount area. And he delivered, and I talked about six illustrations, but actually there were eight illustrations that he gave in chapters 25 and 26 just so that 
his disciples would be ready and prepared. If you remember, there was the fig tree. He said, summer is near. When you see the leaves coming out of the fig tree, you know that it's right at hand. And he was talking about the end of time. He says, if you see these things transpire that took place in Matthew chapter 24, he goes, you know it's right there. So he, ad- he admonished them. He instructed them, say, be aware. Also, as in the days of Noah, until they entered the ark, nobody knew. Everyone was clueless that this flood would come. Although they saw the ark, at that time there were millions and millions, possibly billions of people that populated the earth, and only eight were saved. And he said they were unaware. And he wants us to be aware, or those who remain behind before the tribulation comes, or those who are here that aren't believers and then become believers. He also talked about the owner of the house keeping watch when a thief comes. Be ready. And all of these is going, just be alert. Just be watching what is taking place. And, and, you know, as I prayed for the Americans around the world, they are targets right now because of what happened last week. But in the midst of all this, we're watching Persia. We're watching Iran come to the forefront. And that's why we're watching. Wow, this is the scenario in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39 them coming to power in Russia so we just keep our eyes we are aware we are expectant we are diligent the servants who were unaware and the next illustration he said if they come back if Jesus comes back and he finds them not doing what they're supposed to he would cut them into pieces and so there was a warning there then we had the ten virgins those being prepared those who are having the oil and those who didn't have the oil and then the talents he has given us talents not money necessarily, but even our money, but most importantly, gifts. He wants us to invest our gifts that he has given to us so that others may benefit. And then the sheep and the goats, there were those who were completely unaware that Jesus was coming back in the parable of the sheep and the goats. And those who did the works were unaware that they were doing it for Christ. And so that's supposed to be our motivation. So we're supposed to be diligent. We're supposed to be expectant. We're not to be taken off guard or unawares. And if a servant is in charge, he does not want to find us sleeping. And so all of these things, and how many times does he have to tell us before we say, I get it. He did it eight times, eight different ways after he told us what was going to take place in the Olivet Discourse. Now we see this is the end of the teaching on that discourse of Jesus on the mount and the beginning of what we know as the passion narrative. And when we pick it up, he's at Wednesday. Now, this is all in relation to the Old Testament Passover celebration. In Matthew chapter 26, in verse 1, we won't make it through the entire chapter today because there's 75 verses here. But when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. So two days away was the crucifixion and the Passover. Jesus was crucified on the Passover. And, of course, the Old Testament, we have the Passover lamb that was to be slaughtered. Do you guys know uh, what day it was supposed to be that they selected the lamb? It, it was supposed to be on the 10th of Nisan. The 10th of Nisan was the triumphal entry day. When Jesus came up to Jerusalem, 
was riding inside, that's the day that they picked the lamb to be slaughtered. And the, the town was saying, Hosanna in the highest, glory to God in the highest, you know, th- those types of things. And they were saying, you are it. And so he was the one selected, the Lamb of God. And this allegory, this symbolism, this metaphor that is being used here, the Lamb of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 says, For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. So Jesus is the Passover lamb from the Old Testament. This is a parallel account, and I'll go into this in a little more in depth. But the whole Old Testament system was set up so that you would see the reality when it's fulfilled in Christ, not just for you, but also for all Christians for all time and all Jews. John chapter 1, verse 29, John the baptizer said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Over and over it says this. First Peter 1.19 says, you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or spot. Revelation 5, 6 says, Then I saw the lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. In Revelation two eleven, they overcame by the blood of the lamb. So it is clear from the New Testament text that the Old Testament lamb was to prefigure or foreshadow the coming of Christ who is called the Lamb of God. Now I just want to make some parallels here to that Passover lamb and that whole Passover event and Jesus Christ. First, Jesus knew that his time was coming and he was at the end and it has been prophesied that he would come and he would die. Daniel, we know chapter 9 talks about that. And then the Passover was observed yearly to commemorate the exodus from Egypt and how God accomplished it by sacrificing the firstborn of every household. The firstborn was taken. Who was the firstborn of God? It was Jesus. Jesus was taken. And Jesus' life paid for all of those firstborn. And the only way that they were spared, of course, we know, we'll get to that, how that was done. But the firstborn would be spared if they accepted God's will by carrying out a sacrifice of a lamb. Jesus is the lamb. They took a lamb back then. And so any Jew with half cents would be able, again, to see the parallels, maybe not right when he's in the midst of it, but afterwards looking back. It's like right now in, in our country, we are in the midst of historical events, not just with our country, but worldwide. I mean, these are game-changing events that are taking place. And we don't really recognize it because we're in the middle of it. We're just saying, oh, yeah, oh, this is happening over there, and this is happening over there. But when they look back on our generation here in 50 years, they're going to go, wow, that was a tumultuous time. Of course, I hope Christ is back by then, and we're not even going to think about it. But if not, the people who are left are going to look back and go, wow, that was transformational, not just for a few, but for the entire world. And there's things to come that will just blow our mind, but I'm not going to get into that right now. And the firstborn would be spared if they accepted God's will by carrying out the sacrifice. And all who accept God's will by killing the lamb would also benefit. And make no mistake, we are guilty of killing the lamb of God. And you might say, well, I wasn't there. What are you talking about? It's our sin. It's the sin that's in all of us. It's because of that Jesus went to the cross. If Adam and Eve have not sinned, and we were in Adam and Eve, and we got their sin because of that, that's the original sin that is transferred to us, because of that, we are guilty under God's righteous decrees. 
So we are responsible for the Lamb of God being crucified. And you might say, well, it was Adam's fault. Why did it come to us? You know, Eve, she's the one that was deceived. It was their problem. We shouldn't have been held accountable for that. You think you would have been more perfect? Going back and having the chance to choose, even right now, do you think that if you had a chance to go back and choose not to eat, you think you would? We are fallen. We would probably say, give me a bite of that thing. You know, just they would take hold of it because we would see what it might mean to us. Now, Adam was just disobedient and Eve was deceived in that. And we don't know the entire dynamic that took place. But we are guilty of killing that lamb just as much as Adam and Eve and also all the Jews for all time committing that sacrifice. And by the way, if you go to Israel today during the Passover... They are celebrating the Passover. They have these priests. You can see pictures online of how they're in their their uh, robes. So they go all the way down to the floor and they have their hats on and they are just ready to uh, do the sacrifice. And they set up these blocks, these 88 by 16s is what they call them. And they kind of put mortar on the outside and they put a fire in there and they roast this lamb. And you have this rabbi who's slaughtering it and they, they have pictures of all this. And every year they do this and they have their dignitaries get up there and they speak. But we also know in John chapter 1, verse 35, it says, The next day John was there again with two of his disciples, and when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. And so this is a parallel that's going on here. And the Jews, the leaders of the Jews, the Pharisees, they're paying, paying attention to John the Baptist as well. And so when he had said something like that, it should have immediately went to their mind, The Lamb of God. The Lamb of God is the Passover Lamb. What's he doing saying that Jesus is the Lamb of God? And then they had to eat the Lamb. They had to eat the whole thing. And if they didn't eat the whole thing, they had to burn up what they didn't eat. John chapter 6, verse 54 through 55 says, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. And so they had to eat the lamb, the blood, of course, they put on the doorpost and the lentil of the house. They did all that, but it was by the meat of the lamb and the blood that they were atoned, specifically the blood. And they had to eat the lamb, and that's what we do. When we receive communion, which we have here today and we're going to receive, we're reminded of that very act of the Passover lamb. And they were to place the blood on the doors of the houses. This is the atoning sacrifice, the blood covering over the door of our hearts. Not just the door of our house, but that's how you get into a house. If we are a dwelling place, and God refers to us being a dwelling place. By the way, when he came down, God tabernacled among us. That means he was in a dwelling place in the tabernacle. We are now the tabernacle of God. We have God's blood covering us so when God the Father looks at us we are accepted in his sight you see the symbolism the parallelism that is going on here then the angel of death would pass by and when God looks at us we have passed from judgment unto life the the angel of death passes over us we have received God's mercy and this is a death that is eternal this isn't a death that is temporal that's the death that we are spared from everybody's going to die physically because our bodies cannot be redeemed they have to be completely remade, and God is going to do that. And so this, this death, this eternal separation, remember, it is eternal. It is not temporal. We don't cease to exist because we are created in the image of God, whether we go to heaven or we go to hell. 
And then it goes on to say they were to eat it fully clothed and ready to go. Now, how does this apply to us? Once we have eaten the lamb, so to speak, and I'm bouncing back and forth between reality and symbolism here. I just want to make sure you guys catch that. Once we have eaten the lamb, we are to be prepared to leave doing God's will. When could Jesus come back? In the next minute. I mean, in the next five seconds. Let's wait. Okay, he didn't come back. So, you know, he could come back. He could come back at any time, and we're supposed to be prepared. Now, they were to eat this with staff in hand, sandals on their feet, their cloak on. They're eating it. It's like ready, being prepared eight times. Jesus told his disciples, be ready, be diligent, be prepared. You see the connection that is going on there? And then before they left, they received many gifts and plundered their enemies. Remember, they they were supposed to go to the people that they were working for in Egypt, the Egyptians, and say, hey, can we have some cash, some dough, some gold, some silver, some precious stones, all that? They said, yeah, take it all. And they plundered the Egyptians. Once the Passover happened, once the Passover for us happens, we get gifts. And we use those gifts. Now the Israelites, they got these gifts and they were it was used for them building the tabernacle that was in the wilderness. And God gives us our gifts to build the tabernacle in the wilderness of this world. We're supposed to be using them, like I said, and we already went through Matthew where it talks about that. And then when leaving, they would eat bread made without yeast until they reached the promised land. Now, we eat the bread of life. In John chapter 6, verse 51, it says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now, remember, there was something peculiar about this bread. There was no leaven in it. And you could fix this bread in a matter of minutes. If you were to take the dough and you mixed it up, but you didn't put any leaven in it, it's ready to bake. You just lay it out, you stick it in the oven, and, and it's ready to go. You don't have to wait for it to rise, which can be several minutes to an hour, maybe two hours. You just let that bread rise. They didn't have time. And so in a matter of minutes, probably 15 minutes, they could have it completely done. And Jesus, of course, is a bread of life. And this bread was not bread it was not oftentimes you'll see it depicted as pita bread you guys know what pita bread is but there is leaven in pita bread as well but the cracker the saltine cracker has no yeast but it's the same stuff and so they had a bunch of crackers they were carrying their crispy crackers in their bags walking along and it's not just food for infants anymore it's also food for adults and that's what they ate for approximately a month afterwards and Again, Jesus is the bread of life, and he has no sin. He has no leaven. Oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, leaven is a a symbol of sin. And so they were ready to go, and they ate the bread of life. We are ready to go, and we have partaken of the bread of life. And they passed through the water of the Red Sea with a wall of water on either side, symbolizing death. Now, when you read the accounts in all the movies, except for Cecil B. DeMille, uh, you know, when they were walking, they, they, oh, there was a cartoon, too, out of Egypt that was produced. There was a wall of water. It could be 40 feet. It could be 60 foot tall. 
Now, Buzz and I, we, we go scuba diving. And when you get down to depth and you look up, you know, you're, you're way down there and you're looking up, you're going, wow, there's 40, there's 60, there's 80 feet, there's 100 feet of water on top of me. And I try to imagine that much water as a wall on either side, straight up and down. Now, we know that the wind blew, but the, the end result was there was a wall of water. I would have liked to have gone up and go, oh, I, you know, just, wow, this is kind of cool. I don't even have to have been down and get water. I could just wash my hands right here in the wall. And, and that's what they walked through, but it symbolized death. Also, you had Noah and the death, the water that was all around that. Well, what is our symbol of death? baptism into water we go into the water just like the Israelites went into the water but they were preserved through the water we come up symbolizing death and raising to life we were baptized into Jesus we are also baptized into his death that is Romans chapter 6 verse 1 and so the Jews lived out a generation of their lives in the wilderness before entering the promised land now why did they do this because of their sin what about us why don't we just instantly get to go to heaven when we receive the gospel. Well, who would give the gospel to the next generation? There would be no one left. Could you imagine if we're just right here and you accept Christ and all of a sudden, whoosh, you, you just go right up. Well, who told you about it? Well, I happened to read it in the book. Well, that would be one way, but what if the book wasn't out there? We are, we possess the living word of God in us. And he can guide us. And he can tell us what we need to tell others. And so we are here as a result of our sin, for a generation. Our generation, whatever your generation is, you were here for a generation, and the previous generation died out, and the next generation went into the promised land. We are here for this generation in our old selves, in our old natures, in our own bodies, old bodies, and then when we go to heaven, we get our new body. And so they they tarried in the wilderness for the duration of their lives, before they entered into the promised land, the next generation, and we will, for the duration of our lives, live it out here. Now, why? Why did they sojourn for 40 years? They had to learn obedience. Why? Because the next generation had to have it down before they entered the promised land. We stay here. Why? Because we learn obedience. Even Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. And that makes our transition a little better to the next life. This made the transition for the Israel a little better going into the land that they were promised. And so that's why we're here. And you see all these parallels from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Jesus set it up and anybody with half a brain can see the parallels. It's just whether or not they're willing to accept it. Then going on in verse 3 of Matthew 26. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas. And they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. But not before the feast, they said, or they may, there may be a riot among the people. They're plotting. These are the religious leaders plotting to do evil. They are the leaders plotting to do evil. And... You know, this is wickedness in the eyes of God. In Psalm 37, 12, it says, The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows their day is coming. 
Psalm 38.12 says, Those who seek my life set their traps. Those who would harm me talk of my ruin. All day long they plot deception. Psalm 64.6, They plot injustice and say, We have devised a perfect plan. Surely the mind and heart of man are cunning. And so, you know, they, they were plotting evil while claiming to follow God, knowing that God's decrees, thou shalt not murder. And they were setting up a hit, is what they were doing. Now, lest you think, those bad priests, how terrible. Look, if we are given the right circumstances, we would do just what they did. I have um, been devouring audio teachings and lectures and podcasts. When I'm working, I'm able to listen at great length to people who are interesting out there, both believers and unbelievers. Currently, I'm going through a book from somebody who is a devout Muslim, and he came to Christ because he investigated the claims. And it's really an interesting book that I go I went through. I just went through uh, Mere Christianity again. Uh, that's another good book w- w- written around World War II, C.S. Lewis. It's good. And, and there's a few people that I listen to on YouTube. And uh, there's this one guy, he's a clinical psychologist, and he's had a problem up in Canada with a m- provincial government up there. And, and he's just a joy to listen to. The guy is just sharp as a tack. And I don't know about his... Christianity, his background, sometimes I think, well, he's a believer. Sometimes I think he's not a believer just based on what he says. And I've listened to him extensively. And as I'm listening to him, he gets so much right. I'm going, where did this guy come from? He, he is really coming from the secular end. He's a secular psychologist. And he writes papers and they've been published. And you know, he does a lot, but he's been in obscurity for decades. And now he's come to the forefront. And the things that he is saying, he's just becoming a worldwide phenomenon. In the past two years, he's been to 30 countries speaking. And so I I was listening to him again. And the thing that he said that really struck me out of all the things that he said was as a clinical psychologist, the thing that has struck him the most is that how we are capable of such evil is what he said. And this is coming from the secular realm. This isn't coming from a theological bent. This is coming from academia. He is a a tenured professor. And and so when he said that, I go, whoa, if this guy can see it, because he studies human behavior. Uh, I remember Mr. Wade, who I took psychology with back in uh, junior college, he said, the goal of psychology is to predict and control behavior. That's why we have psychologists. We try to give people insight what they're supposed to do to correct their problems so that they can have a better life. And that's what this guy does, and he has analyzed it forever. But the main point that I want to leave you with is, We are evil, and even people in secular society recognize how evil we can be. And so as far as Jesus being set up by those who uh, were of the religious sect of the Jews, even the priest, we are just as prone to that. It's only by God's grace that we are able to say no to the things of the flesh and the desires that dwell therein. Going on in verse 6, while Jesus was in Bethany... In the home of a man known as Simon the leper, 
<coughs> excuse me, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. Where this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body... She did this to prepare for me for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And this is in all four gospels. This is one of the few stories that's in all four gospels. So who was this woman? Well, we know it was Mary. Now, which Mary was it? Some people say it was Mary Magdalene. Some people say it was Mary and Martha Mary. I think it was Mary and Martha Mary. Why? Because it was at the home of Simon. Who was Simon? Simon was a leper. Simon was a Pharisee. Simon was in Bethany. Lazarus was there. Martha served the meal. Mary showed up with the alabaster jar. They knew Simon the leper. Some people have even said, it's their father. Simon the leper, the Pharisee, is their father. At least they knew each other. Because Martha was in the home, she was serving, Mary showed up, and Simon the leper, now I have a question for you. Jesus is in the home of Simon the leper. Do you think he healed Simon the leper? He's eating in his home. Do you think he healed him? I think absolutely he healed him. There's no question in my mind. If Jesus is going to his house, he probably felt ingratiated towards Jesus. You healed me, so... I'd like you to come. I want to fix you a meal. And you could see that. Now, whether he was the father of Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, we don't know. But they certainly had a close acquaintance. You just don't ask some stranger to come in and fix this meal and do all of this. They, they knew each other at that point. So, again, Simon the leper, a Pharisee, probably felt indebted to Jesus and needed to do this for him. And so when all this took place, that would be the reason to have the meal. Jesus shows up, but then Simon the leper objects to Mary. Do you know what kind of woman she is? Do you know who's touching you? And if you go to all four stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you put all this stuff together and you go, oh, it's, it's so clear. These people were all there. They were all part of this celebration as well. So we, we want to make sure we get the full gist of what is being communicated here. Simon was upset, and then Jesus turned to him and told him a story about being forgiven much or forgiven little, and I won't go too much into the detail of that. But he basically said that Mary loved much because she was forgiven much. And she wiped his feet with her tears and with her hair the whole time. And he turned to Simon and said, you know, you didn't give me water for my feet, but she has wiped my feet with tears. You didn't anoint my head with oil, and she has anointed me with oil for my burial. You know, all these things, and there was a third thing that she did, but the, the point of the story is he was showing that Simon the leper, really down in his heart, no matter who he was, his heart was not right. And he was ingratiated towards Mary, the thing that she had done. And he stated, everybody would know about this. If they read anything about his crucifixion, they would know that Mary had done this. And also, 
he never got a kiss from Simon the leper when he came in. And he said, she has not ceased to kiss my feet this whole time. And so he praised her for that. And of course, again, she loved much, but apparently Simon loved little. And especially if he was healed as a leper, he should have been in love with Jesus and what he has done for him, sparing his life. Then verse 14, Then one of the twelve who was called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 coins or silver, 30 silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Now, of course, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12. I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay. But if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they priced me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw it in the house of the Lord to the potter. And that's exactly what Judas did. Threw the coins after the crucifixion. He had betrayed innocent blood. He realized it. They took that money. They said that is blood money. We can't put it into the treasury. We're going to buy a potter's field to bury those who are strangers. <coughs> and of course, he, <coughs> excuse me, he went on to commit suicide as a result of that. And then verse 17, on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparation for you to eat the Passover? And of course, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is concomitant or in with the Feast of Passover. You had uh, nice on the 10th where you selected the animal. You had that next Thursday where you killed the animal, the lamb. And then after that, after the 24-hour period of Passover, you had seven days of unleavened bread, and they ate unleavened bread for seven days. He goes on to say in verse 18, they replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointment time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12, and while they were eating he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, surely not I, Lord. They replied, the one who has dipped his hand in the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus answered, yes, it is you. Now, why did he betray him? There's speculation on this. Maybe because the Messianic rule was being delayed and he wanted to facilitate bringing that forward and force Jesus to just, by his miraculous power, step up and oppose the Roman government and establish his rule. Uh, we don't know if that was the case or not. Or maybe J Judas just saw that Jesus was an ultimate failure. He was getting out. Or maybe he just was greedy and wanted the money. So the price paid for this slave, Exodus chapter 21, verse 32, if a bull gores a male or female slave, the owner must pay 30 shekels of silver to the master of the slave. The bull must be stoned. So if a bull killed a slave, 30 pieces of silver. So Jesus was given the price of a slave. And then verse 26, while they were eating, Jesus took bread give thanks and broke it and gave it to the disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks and ordered them saying, drink, excuse me, not ordered, offered it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. 
This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out from the Mount of Olives. Now, at this point, we're going to receive communion. This is a place to do it. This was the Passover meal that was taking place. And there are four cups in the Passover meal, the Seder. And this would have been the final cup of the Seder. After they had drank that last cup, then they would have sang a hymn and they would have exited. Now, he would have sang a Hallel Psalm. A Hallel Psalm, the Hallel Psalms are Psalm 115 to 118. And we're going to sing uh, something that has been taken from Psalm 118, the last verse that's in there. I think it's verse 29. It's also at the beginning, like at about verse 4. And we're going to sing that. But before we do that, we're going to receive communion just like Jesus. He took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body which is given for you. And we're to eat the lamb of God. In the Old Testament, they ate the lamb. Jesus is the bread of life. We eat the bread, which is the body of the lamb of God. In the Old Testament, they took the blood and they put it on the doorpost and the lentil. And the angel of death passed over that. We receive the blood. Remember, if we don't drink of his blood, we have no part of him. Of course, this is not his blood. It doesn't transform into blood, as some Christians would say. And, and we drink this juice that represents the blood of Christ. So the bread is symbolic of the body of Christ. The cup is symbolic of the blood of Christ. And it is by his blood we have remissions of sins. So the Old Testament, they look forward to the coming of Jesus. New Testament, we look back to when Jesus came. That's why we receive communion. If we're believers, we participate. If we're not believers, ah, let it go. Because you're recognizing the body and blood of Christ when we receive the elements. So what we're going to do at this time is the worship team is going to come up. <clears throat> I'm going to start playing a song. They're going to dim the lights here. If there's anything that you need to turn to God and say, God, forgive me, which I know all of us have something, I. Right? That's the time to do it. You have to say, Lord, thank you for the grace that you have given to us as you served your disciples. We know that you have provided for us the elements which are here, the bread and the cup, and we desire to have full fellowship restored with you if there's something that's interrupting that. But also, we, it's a time to just give Jesus thanks for what he has done for us.